Welcome to the show. This is the Magician and the Fool podcast. My name is Dominic. My co-host's name is Janus, and you will hear from him in a little bit. This is episode number 54. Today we speak with former guests Jack Grail and T. Susan Chang to discuss Homer, the Iliad, the Odyssey, and all of the lessons therein. Jack and Susie are joining forces to run a class on the Homeric epics called God Song, and I will talk about that in a second. Um, firstly, if you don't know who Jack Grail is, he is a classically trained theatrical performer and author of the very popular Hecateon, which is a devotional to Hecate. Good luck trying to find a copy, um, although they're floating around out there. Um, Jack runs multiple classes out of the Blackthorn School, um, one on Hecate, and there's another one on the magic of the Greek magical papyri. We interviewed Jack a little while back. I would highly recommend checking that episode out. That would be episode number 42. And Susie Chang, she's a musician, a classicist, and an author who graduated from Harvard University. Some of her books that she's authored are Tarot Correspondences, uh, 36 Secrets, A Decanic Journey Through the Minor Arcana of the Tarot, Tarot Deciphered, she co-authored. We talked with Susie back in episode number 41, so I would also highly recommend that episode. As far as the class that they are Running together, it is called God Song. It starts on October tenth, twenty twenty-two, for this cycle. Um, as I record this, it is October seventh, currently twenty twenty-two. So, so not too much time until it starts. But you can sign up after it has already started. I I did that last year, and it's fine. The videos are always available, and there's lots of videos. You get three a week for the entire year, which is quite spectacular, um, especially if you are a nerd like myself. You can find that class on Jack's website. That would be graillore.teachable.com. So that's G-R-A-Y-L-E dash lore, L-O-R-E, dot teachable.com. Don't try to say that three times fast. This episode was really fun. Um, like I said, our previous two episodes with these guys were great, very well received. I really enjoy this topic, and uh, I think it's interesting because the focus with the Iliad and the Odyssey is on the heroes. Um, there, there is a lot of intervention of the gods and kind of side stories with, with the gods and how they're relating to everything that's happening. But if you... If you follow Iamblichus, for instance, um, he talks about the, the souls, the daimons, the heroes, 
uh, the angels, and, and so on. And sometimes, at least for me, it was hard to envision how the heroes fit into um, like a spiritual practice, for instance. But this this class and these epics kind of explain the, the blurry lines between heroes who are essentially demigods in many cases and, and the gods. Um, you could think of the heroes in this Hellenic context as perhaps like a saint or an arhat. Um, not exactly one-to-one equivalent, but someone who is elevated beyond kind of the mundane person who is closer to the gods and participates fairly intimately with the gods. So it's a really fascinating topic, and we are sure you're going to enjoy it. As always, I have to thank our Patreon supporters. We really appreciate the partnership, and thank you for, for helping us continue this work. If you would like to become a patron, please feel free. Go over to patreon.com and look us up. We dedicate this to Hermes and Asclepius, and may any merits that we accumulate doing this work be distributed to all sentient beings so that they, together with us, may equally realize awakening. Welcome to the show. This is going to be a good one. We are here with returning guests, not uh, not only one returning guest, but two returning guests, uh, Susie Chang and Jack Grail, uh, two very popular guests um, to talk about uh, all things Homer and a class that they're collaborating on called God Song. Welcome. Welcome back, guys. Welcome. Thank so you. Good to Thank be you. here with you again. Yeah, no, this is super exciting. Um, as you know, like I'm super ex- enthusiastic about this course. I, I think it's an amazing course. I think the the topic is something that's needed. I think people need to be kind of educated on Homer. And I don't know how many people are interested in it nowadays, but I think it um, informs a lot of the work that is done in esoteric circles as far as just antique uh, magic and and things like that. So I think it's super relevant and it's exciting and I'm glad you guys are doing it. Um, so I'm, I'm just going to assume people know who you are. And if not, <laughs> just Google. Here's <laughs> your Google. Um, any opening, opening thoughts before we get into questions and things? I'll, I'll throw out this. You said that it's an educational experience and probably most people realize why it's valuable from an occultic standpoint. But I don't think A... I think I, I don't think people do know that. And B, uh, I think it if it's educational, it's kind of it that's a side effect to me. Like for one thing, like he, here's what I think. These stories, everyone's kind of heard of Iliad and Odyssey, right? But it comes from it by now, at least in America, it has such of a it sort of has a 
you know, like a waft of a college course you were supposed to take, but, you know, <laughs> yes. skimmed the cliff notes and, and got a C by, right. by looking at the, the the test sheet of, you know, your the person sitting next to you. It feels like a job. It feels like a duty or it feels like something that someone at the with, a you know, an, an Ivy League ed- education might have, uh, you know, m- might have dove into. But I I can't help but think that like right now, if there was an article online that said a Bronze Age epic had been discovered, something 3,200 years old, that involved both, you know, epiphanies of the god, sorcery, necromancy, and gives pretty much the a roadmap to how they viewed destiny and the way that fate interacted with humans and the, the amount to which our choices can change our destiny or not, and revealed how to relate to your patron god and you know and uh and had a you know just a series of grotesquely violent encounters in it and, <laughs> and, and fairy tale like adventures throughout the Aegean you know ending in a you know in a remarkable you know vengeful bloodbath that you know like everyone would want to read it if that was mm-hmm. discovered tomorrow everyone would be like what the, what the, this is what i've been waiting for why am i watching you know you know all, game all of these, thrones uh, yeah right and everyone yeah. would want to copy and everyone would dive into it and that's what it is. Mm-hmm. But just because it's been around for 3,200 years and we grew up with being kind of threatened by it, by our English teachers, like next year, <laughs> we'll, we'll look at this. It has this purchase of being work, you know, of being edu- good for us. You know, my God, like mm-hmm. what restaurant ever sold a dish by saying this is good for you? You know, like it's it's so the the trick actually isn't telling people, convincing people this is old or this is classical or everyone appreciates this. The trick is telling people this is fresh, this is exciting, this is dangerous, this is sexy, this is gross, this is startling, this is illuminating. This could help you with your approach to forming a relationship with a patron god. This could inform your necromantic work. This could help you make sense of your own life as you try to make sense of the, quote, good choices you've made or, quote, bad choices and figure out where am I going and how much choice do I have getting, you know, on on the way. Like, this is actually, it's useful as well as being, you know, strange and beautiful and uh, and and baffling and um, and thrilling in its own way. So that's the trick, man. You know, when we approach this stuff is convincing people it's fresh and relevant and not sort of dusty and dry and dutiful. Mm-hmm. This is what Jack is just so exceptionally good at, because, you know, from his PGM course, that what he does is he manages to take this, you know, really um, distant material, stuff that is so remote, apparently, from us, and to freshen it up in ways that, you know, are really hard to anticipate. I mean, I myself, even as a person who studied the classics and who 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 read a lot of them in, in the original, you know, for me to look at the PGM was actually really intimidating until until Jack sort of, you know, synthesized it in his way and sort of oh. found out what the connections were between what a modern person might see and what somebody, a contemporary of the sorcerer of the time might have seen. And he does the same thing for, for, uh, for Iliad and Odyssey. And, you know, for me to go back and revisit this material, which I first encountered literally 30 years ago, mm. and it really was a chore. <laughs> I mean, it was <laughs> literally my homework, you know, for years and years. And, you know, I I think that 
it's so easy to lose sight of the fact that it really is just a ripping yarn when you get right down to it. And, you know, it just takes fresh eyes to do that. And so, you know, that's really what this course is about. Well, also for anybody who is interested in late antique magic, uh, especially Hellenic magic, or even anybody interested in Hellenismos, it's a, it's essential um, to grasp the zeitgeist and the cultural mind of the Hellenes. I mean, it's the 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 the, the Iliad and the Odyssey. These are these are literally windows into the way that uh, the mind of that time in that place functioned. And if you you're not going to be able to grasp the 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 magic of that time without without an insider's understanding of the way of the worldview you know the worldview it's important. yeah yeah no that's very true i mean i think you know the classic distinction between the iliad and the odyssey is that the iliad is said to be an epic of kleos of glory whereas the uh, odyssey is supposed to be an epic of nostos of return of homecoming and i think you know but what shocked me reading these books was that the relationship that these heroes have with their gods is not like what you'd expect, right? They're not just, you know, falling to their knees and praying, you know, just sort of devotionally in ritual, like we might do in a planetary practice or something like that. They're calling on them, you know, when they are in trouble, they're calling on them when they're upset, they're calling on them just because, you know, there's like, you know, it's just this constant two-way conversation going but I, on. But I think that in a devotional theurgical practice that is alive, it becomes that. It becomes mm. that. When you experience mm -hmm. the reality of the God through the epiphany, through the manifestation, when the God become enters into your practice and is self-revelatory, then there is that relational quality that that is acquired that it it turns from the sort of um mechanical observance into this dynamic interaction i mean think of the spell of astrosuchos you know for you are i and i am you you are with mm. me and i am with you you are in me and i am in you and we are one there's a yeah. you know there's a omusios there's a shared essence that's revealed through the uh, analogical and dialectical interaction of the devotee with the deity. And it comes to a point where it's like, you know, if I'm talking to my dad, I know my dad is in a position to help me when I've exhausted my own agency. Right. And But I can speak to my dad in a frank way. You know, I might initially call mm -hmm. on him in a formal sense, but then once he comes, we're probably just going to directly interact. Right. Right. Yes. And I think, you know, you really make a great point about the reciprocity of these relationships, the transactionality in some cases of these relationships. I mean, the very first um, thing that I chose to highlight when we were going through the Iliad the first time was um, was a prayer right from right from book one, where uh, where Achilles mother, Thetis, actually goes to Zeus and says, please, if I ever did anything for you. Please help me with my son. And, you know, so what I thought would be fantastic for anybody to be able to do would be able to, you know, to, to take that prayer and use it if you want to, if ever I did anything for you. So it, it goes, which means, you know, so if ever I 
among immortals please you, epe ergo, which means um, in word or in deed, todemoi non eldor, which means grant me this wish. And so you can very easily adapt this to say, if ever I among mortals pleased you, then grant me this wish, which I actually do regularly. <laughs> yeah, point, same, same. Know? Yeah, that was, well, that was I mean, one of the lessons yeah. that I got from, sorry, from that chapter. And I've incorporated it as well. If, if, if I have mm-hmm. never honored you, then don't consider this request that I'm bringing, bringing forward. Um, and yeah, I, I've brought that into my my daily practice, or or whenever it's needed. And there's a lot of stuff in this course that is directly translatable into very practical, you know, your, your normal praxis. So having said that, we've we've introduced our guests, and we've introduced the topic and the content we're going to be covering here. Um, but we'd like to kind of um, take a little intermission for a second to invoke the power of Hermes, the god Hermes, not only to assist us in this conversation, but to assist all those who are listening um, so that you all may embody that which he personifies. Hear me, Hermes, messenger of Zeus, son of Maya, almighty in heart, lord of the deceased. Gentle and clever, O Argifantes, you are the guide of the flying sandals, a man-loving prophet to mortals. A vigorous god, you delight in exercise and in deceit, interpreter of all you are, and a profiteer who frees us of cares, who holds in his hands the blameless tool of peace. Lord of Coricos, blessed, helpful, and skilled in words, you assist in work and you are a friend of mortals in need. You wield the dreaded, the respected weapon of speech. Hear my prayer and grant a good end to a life of industry, gracious talk, and mindfulness. Hail to you, benevolent Father, loquacious and eloquent one. Grant us insight and wisdom, and bless all who hear our words this day with insight and knowledge. Okay. Thank you guys for doing that that was great um we need all the help we can get here (laughs) it's a it's a great idea it sacralizes the whole process it's a wonderful wonderful idea good i'm glad you guys were down from it for it and i'm and like janice said you guys are the perfect duo to do this with so we appreciate it we were we were talking about something um but i want to kind of back take a step back here and talk about um, the context of these stories, because they are very alien. Um, I mean, they're very familiar, very familiar, too familiar sometimes, but so extremely alien. It's almost like a, a different species of, of human um, in this Bronze Age. Um, the amount of violence and, I mean, Ulysses or Odysseus is, you might consider him a sociopath. Um, by today's standards, <laughs> um, as were as were you know everyone in the story almost, and um, these Greek um, tribes, these Hellenic tribes, were more like gangs, really. Um, <laughs> it's true. It, it's it's got all this kind of um, flowery 
um, language about honor and glory and, and prestige. But at the end of the day, there's a lot of just murder and raping and pillaging and stealing, you know? So I think maybe contextualizing that aspect too, to kind of just see where we're at with, with Homer and, and where we're coming from here. It's a, it's a good idea. Part of the challenge is right now, when you say to someone, if you mentioned the Greeks, what they think of as these hyper-civilized, extremely sophisticated philosophers, which is what you know they're famous for now, Plato and Socrates and Aristotle. And so when you mention Greek thought or Greek culture or Greek this mm -hmm. or that, we think of the golden age of Greece, the age of Pericles, and all the brilliant, complicated, sophisticated, you know, um, philosophical ideas and democracy and, and all those things. But but that was not a thing. These 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 tales were first written down around 800 BC, so you know, long before uh, you know Socrates would have would have been alive or the, or the those philosophers. But it's quite possible that they were though they were written down eighth century BC that they existed in an oral tradition four or five hundred years prior. It's possible, mm -hmm. and the world they capture is not the world of sophisticated, thoughtful, articulate philosophers around the Agora. The, the Greeks in this world, in the Bronze Age, in the age of the, the kingdom of Mycenae, you know, which is not far from the, the great you know, uh, kingdom of Knossos on Crete, they, they had a reputation of being you know, dangerous and, 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 and had a access to wealth and culture. But they, to the rest of the world, they were dangerous barbarians and raiders. They were very much like in Game of Thrones, the people of the plains who ride the horses that 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 you know everyone's terrified of. And you know, it's like how people thought of of the Mongols later. You know, they were known for they were great seafaring people. They could ride horses. They lived in clans. They were they were extremely um, you know capable of violence. They were a warrior culture, like the Norse. Of 800 AD, like the Maori, you know, of of a hundred years ago, like like they were war culture, and because of that, they had you know the the strengths and weaknesses of a war culture. And so, what when you read the the Iliad, it's a glimpse, like 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 Janice said, it feels more like gang warfare when it first begins. The story begins nine and a half years into the siege of Troy in the Greeks' camp, and they are hip deep in the slime of trench warfare. No one's seen their family in over a decade, and they've been sieging this extremely well, you know, well um, defended, um, sophisticated city for years. And they're infighting among themselves, and there's factions that want to go back, and there's other factions that think the leadership sucks, and there's everyone's afraid of the leaders, and the leaders, Agamemnon, and, and all the other kings. There's this loose affiliation of kings. No one trusts each other. Everyone's second-guessing each other. Everyone's thinking the other person is gaslighting them or trying to screw them over. There's paranoia rampant in the camp. And there's also disease rampant in the camp. And the morale has never been lower. And there's a this sort of this this building energy to confront Agamemnon for him having basically unsuccessfully managed this siege and offended the gods in such a way that they're plagued by Apollo for actions he took when he uh, he took as a as a prisoner of war the daughter of a Trojan priest of Apollo. And so there's this building sense of, of perhaps rebellion 
uh, it's like it's like it dropped in the middle of a a burnt out Vietnam platoon where they're just um, five minutes away from fragging the sergeant. Like that is what you're dropped into. So on one hand, it's this alien world, but on the other hand, the immediacy of the violence and the disease and the paranoia and the low morale and the confusion as to where the gods and all this, who if we offend it, are we our own? Because keep in mind, the Greeks and the Trojans worship the same gods. They don't have two different cultures. I mean, there's even talk, there's a large school of thought that thinks Homer came from Asia Minor. Like that's part of the Hellenic Empire. People think of Hellenes being Greeks, but the Hellenic Empire encompassed, you know, the islands and Asia Minor, parts of Asia Minor and things like that. So they they worship the same gods. So here they are, unsuccessful in their siege, missing their families, angry at their king, diseased, infighting, paranoid, furious. And so there's an immediate hook of this world, which at once is foreign and really familiar. And that, to me, is a it's a great way to begin the story. Yeah. Well, and you, you've got, I mean, I really think the point you made is significant because, yes, it's a quote-unquote alien culture, but we, I, in my opinion, we don't want to necessarily overemphasize that perspective because so much of our modern culture is what in the West is descended from Hellenic mm. culture and um you know really are are the underpinnings of our western culture are, are you know hellenic and roman in so many ways that we're still living in that and on the other hand we're dealing with the essential humanity of these situations i mm. mean except for the fury that basically you know somebody did this stupid thing and now apollo's going to flex on everyone like <laughs> I mean, but, but, you know, it's very human. These situations are very human. Like you said, it's like platoon or something. I mean, mm-hmm. these in things the Iliad in particular, today. I yeah. think, yeah. you know, the Iliad in particular, I mean, the Odyssey is human scaled, but with a lot of fantasy in it, but the Iliad, you know, it is about human ambition and human hurt feelings and human greed and human glory. And in fact, the only sort of um, supernatural, really supernatural elements in the Iliad that I can think of, and maybe Jack can correct me, are uh, the talking horse and the fight with a river. (laughs) (laughs) Spoiler alert. I mean, there's a lot of intervention by the gods and there's side a lot side of, conversations. Yeah, uh, but even the the whole you know the interactions with the gods are fascinating because mm-hmm. they're not you know they're not in technicolor. They're not Harry Potter at all. I mean, it's like mm-hmm. a god will appear as a mist or like a friend or like yeah. you know a shadow or a bird. You know, they're they're Dream. plausibly Dream. deniable. <laughs> That's a good way to put it. It's well, kind of. Wonderfully low budget in a way. It's like, yes. it's like, oh, yes. the God appears as his best friend. And you're like, wow, <laughs> so no one really didn't spring for the CGI. Yeah, this, this is not that. the Marvel Cinematic Universe. It's more like the Blair Witch Project. <laughs> on, on the other hand, I think that it's um, wonder, wonderfully illustrative of the archaic uh, perspective, which is fully uh, enmeshed in an attitude of imminence Mm. so you know we're really Mm. the imminence reveals the numina of the god and the way that the god is able to manifest through the you know multiplicity of phenomena that are around us you know the agency of the god is not limited to dramatic manifestations but 
subtlety and in that there's a relevance in that subtlety i think that is more poetic than a, a, a egregious uh egregious and almost vulgar um manifestation which you know the manifestation is tuned to the nature of the situation i think and and reveals a characteristic of that time i don't remember where i read it um but I remember someone making a point in something I read where to to a Greek of that time to meet Apollo to, to 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 for somebody to come up to them and say, Oh, well, I met Apollo on the road to the city and he told me to do this, this, and this. Um, it would not seem unlikely. It wouldn't seem strange mm-hmm. to the, them. They would be like, Okay, well, that's entirely likely that you did meet Apollo. You know? Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's valid. Well, there's this wonderful passage in, uh, I don't know, book five or six or something like that of the Iliad, where um, on the battlefield, uh, Diomedes is battling and he's having a hard time. And he actually prays to Athena to lift the mist from his eyes so he can recognize immortals and distinguish them from mortals because he knows he's been given the information that it's okay for him to like wound the weak gods like Aphrodite, you know, just stay away from the war God. But, um, but, but I think, you know, the, there's an acknowledgement in there that, you know, that we as humans are a among immortals all the time and that, we might not realize it and B uh-huh. that there's a, there's tech for removing our blindness, you know, and for lifting that mist, which I find fascinating. Well, I love that you made that point because that speaks to the uh, meta nature of the, um, of the dialectic, because what happens is in the two way interaction between the human and the divine, there's an attenuated perception that occurs. And then things like what you just described happen where mm-hmm. it's like okay lord please grant me the uh grant me the ability to perceive the distinction between humans and deities in human form so that i can appropriately uh i can express appropriate reverence that's right that's, right. that's so well said and you nailed it janice what's what's amazing about these stories is they make for spiritual seekers they make the divine relatable. Mm-hmm. In some ways, mm-hmm. they're the opposite of Renaissance grimoires. Yeah, it'll say yeah. if the spirit comes, it will be as a a king on a dromedary holding a scepter. <laughs> so, in other words, if you don't see that, I mean, there's a lot of people think, well, he didn't come. Whereas in the in the Iliad, they're like, you'll see Apollo, but he's going to look like your best friend. Yeah, so you yeah. you'll hear the advice of your patron goddess from your mom's mouth, you know, or you'll encounter your dead friend in a dream. Mm-hmm. you'll 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 be told the secret by a stranger that mm-hmm. only afterwards will you be, and and those are the things we experience in real life and what it does is it sacralizes if we let it if we take the paradigm to heart it helps sacralize our regular everyday existence to where there's not one conversation you have with a stranger on the bus or or flicking through channels on the radio or or whatever where you can't stop and think could this be the god speaking to me is this a message that's meant only for me? Is this what it seems, or is there a double a double thing happening here? And even if the person I'm talking to is a human, could it be the fact that this for this one moment they're a mask, they're a, they're a puppet, they're a, a, the voice of the God is speaking through them to me? 
and it it creates this watchfulness where your 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 esoteric life and your mundane life there's no bright line between them but those two venn diagrams almost completely merge because anything is possible mm-hmm. that's right and it suffuses life with meaning right mm. Totally, totally. I, I think it could be problematic for people who suffer from mental health Precisely. issues, yeah. mm-hmm. but it, it's a much You don't more, want to invite a psychotic break. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's much a, a much more rich way to, I think, um, approach these topics and these practices um, rather than expecting these overly overt and gaudy kind of manifestations of, you know, whatever in, in the smoke. This is much more... Uh, something that's much more attainable and something that's much more lived um something that can be an ex- that can be experienced um more regularly um but also requires that 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 perception that kind of refined perception i th- i think that needs to be there as well yeah that's well said and when people do cuz sometimes people do have visions of gods but it's mm-hmm. often sure. because they're related to them so the yes. god is also your mother or yes. your father. Yes. But like they're yes. heroes. Right. Or or they're devotees, they're lifelong devotees. And it's your patron god who appears often in a dream, mm-hmm. or often in a sometimes, sometimes, but often in a way that even those like like Odysseus that occasionally will see Athena. Mm-hmm. Odysseus is still often interpreting signs that like he knows that's not going to be there every time. He'll he'll tell his friends, did you hear that heron cry? That's Athena. Yeah. Or he'll mm. tell his friends he he understood the vulture at the far end of the battlefield was Athena giving him favor. Or he'll he'll hear a you know a clap of thunder and think, well, that's Zeus. You know, mm-hmm. he doesn't expect he's seen a god now and then in its you know, whatever it appeared to him in a supernatural form, but he doesn't expect it. And he's constantly interpreting his world. He's doing what people would do even without that experience. So it's like Mm -hmm. added bonus if -hmm. you occasionally get a glimpse of them. But even those who do in these narratives don't expect it. And And there's an assumption, you know, there's an assumption that even if you can't see them, even if you can't hear them, they're there Mm -hmm. and you just have to call on them. One of my absolute favorite passages in the Odyssey is um, when (laughs) in book five, where the Odysseus washes up, you know, naked, bruised, (laughs) bedraggled, exhausted on the shores of Scaria to the land of the Phaeacians. And he's, you know, with Poseidon literally trying to kill him as he, as he comes in and he's, and he prays to the God of the river of the island he's washing up on to help him. And he's like, I don't have any idea who you are. He literally says, <laughs> you know, listen, Lord, whoever you are, this is this is a great prayer. I'm just going to read two lines. Listen, Lord, whoever you are, I reach you long prayed for. Have mercy, Lord. Because I claim that I'm supplicating you. And to me, this is like the, the, this fantastic general all-purpose, like, I don't know where I am. I just got here. I need help. I have literally said this prayer just like on a hike because I was sort of lost, you know? That's I mean, beautiful. It is a great, it's a great prayer. And it's just so illustrative of the mindset, yeah? Well, that. was it Seleucius that said the world is full of gods? Yes. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, so this is, an, this is a perfect example of, of the, the deep 
implicit animism of the archaic mind. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. Everything is alive, and really, it's it's um to use two two uh, words from other paradigms from you know from a from a Buddhist sense we have dependent origination, and from a Jungian sense we have synchronicity, the correlation of inner contents and outer 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 manifestations. Right. So when he's saying that Heron is Athena. He is probably having a vis- interior vision or um, affective uh, perception of Athena on some level uh, that's correlating simultaneously with the manifestation of the heron, which enables him to identify it as a revelation of the goddess. The, ever, the gods are all the gods and our souls are all part of the world soul. Mm. The world soul mm. is one. Mm-hmm. So the 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 revolution of the world soul uh, manifests the gods in all places simultaneously because we anthropomorphize the gods, but they are numina; they are beyond forms, but reveal themselves through forms. Um, of course, through the chains that uh, belong to them. So if I see, if I've done an invocation to um, Aphrodite, and I see two ring doves that morning the minute i walk out of the door on my roof that is a very clear manifestation of the goddess and it's not me being fanciful because it correlates with what i just did mm-hmm. yes yes every bird every rock every tree every clap of thunder you know there's this wonderful um passage in the end of the odyssey week book 20 or so where um where Odysseus is back home and um and there's a, just this little homely scene of like a washerwoman not even like a strong or beautiful washerwoman but literally the weakest lamest oldest washerwoman who comes out from her washing cuz she's the last one cuz she's old and weak and she hears a clap of thunder and she like says Oh my god, that's Zeus. You are you are providing a portent for somebody. You're providing an omen for someone. Mm. And there's no cloud in the sky. So so why don't you make my prayer come true? She's like, you know, she's 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 tailing, you know, she's following in the wake of somebody else's prayer and she adds her wish, you know, that Odysseus <laughs> should come home. Because why not? You know, awesome. it's like drafting behind a truck on the highway. It's like, it's like, like in the slipstream, a draft. Yeah. I love that. I love it's, that. It's so brilliant. It's so brilliant. And this is this is really one of the main reasons why I love this course is is that that kind of insight is is part of it. It's it's mm-hmm. kind of baked into the into the course. And and it's and what you just said is so brilliant. And and yeah, it's it's amazing the way they were viewing things in their perspective. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Uh, what's cool is how informal improvisatory it yeah. can yes. be. Spontaneous. Like we spent, yeah. yeah. Again, again, a lot of people's ideas of magic come from, you know, the grimoire tradition where there has to be, there's this sort of pressure to do everything perfectly mm-hmm. and, and tons of elaborate, you know, set up and um, tons of elaborate, you know, uh, tools and all this. But these prayers are said, and these are they're said on a battlefield, you know, yelled out while at a dead run. Mm-hmm. They're said, you know, half swamped and a, you know, washed up on shore. They're they're mumbled while 
creeping to in the darkness toward the enemy camp. What matters is, as Janice pointed out earlier, that you have a devotional relationship with the gods that's a regular conversation between you and them. And because of that, it can be informal. It can even be internal. There are times when Odysseus speaks to the gods just in his own head, in his own yeah. heart, without doing it. And when they show people that are clearly favored of the gods, when they have the time, they, they make a, a statement. They always tip their glass to yes. the first sip yes. to the gods, the first sip to the gods. If they're wealthy and have a kingdom, then they make regular offerings that are obviously generous, uh, you know, meals to the to the gods and things like that. But they always refer mm -hmm. really approvingly of people who put the gods first, you know, and that's whether you have modest means or generous means. But the premise is, if you do that, if you do that in your way that you're capable of, if you take the time, if you make the effort, they reciprocate. And they mm -hmm. reciprocate in a way that doesn't require a ton of tools or a bunch of careful timing or a bunch of manipulative tech. It 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 can be if if they view you as a friend, they treat you as a friend. And that That's can be right. a shortcut to getting their favor. You know. I want to pause here for a minute just to give emphasis to what you just said because your point just now is extremely it's extremely important for people to understand. Um, you know, if if you're if 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 you're developing this, you know, it, it, are the gods going to be inclined to respond to somebody who consistently remembers them? I mean, it's kind of like a good friend. If you nourish a friendship, mm -hmm. that friend is going to be responsive to you. Whereas if you're just occasionally imprecating over some dire need you have, I mean, it's going to be <laughs> yeah. a completely different situation. So I yes. think what you just said is so, so, so important. And I also want to make two other points that I want to back up for a moment just to get back to the manifestation thing. The thing is like that lightning or that thunder, it's not a, it, to that mind, to the mindset of that time, it wasn't a symbol of the God. It was the God. It the thunder the God. is yeah. the God. Mm -hmm. So when the thunder mm -hmm. happens, that's the God. You know, mm -hmm. when the dove appears, that is Aphrodite. Mm -hmm. And, mm -hmm. um, you know, when the dog shows up or two dogs on the road show up, those are Hermes. Mm -hmm. You know, <laughs> you've got Gemini, the twins, and then you've got the dogs. So I think it's really important to sort of peel away that, that, that layer of um, conditioning, post-enlightenment conditioning, where we tend to see um, the, the epiphany as a, a mediating symbol instead of a revelation and manifestation of the God that's imminent and present. And it's not this artificial interject introjection of the God into our reality, but a natural flowing uh, expression of the God through the medium of the circulation of the world's soul in the myriad phenomena of manifestation. Um, and these stories show that time and time and time and time again. That's yes. And once that relationship is established, it doesn't take you know, an enormous amount of setup to get there. I mean, you can literally be naked hanging off a fig tree over a whirlpool. <laughs> they will hear you. I mean, it does sound fun. That's a, that's Been a there, good done one. that. It, it reminds me of, you know, you look at the star Antares in our night sky, and it looks like a red star with five or six points coming off it. But Antares itself, that sun, it's not red. And it doesn't have five points. But the only way we can experience Antares in our world 
is by looking through our atmosphere. And due to the speed it's moving at, the speed we're mm-hmm. moving at, and the directions we're moving in relation to each other, we experience it as red. And due to our vision being, you know, flawed by the the atmosphere and such, it looks like it has points. So the only way we can experience the epiphany of that star, you know, is is a red flared light in the sky, when in fact it itself is, you know, is probably the same color as our sun. So it's just, it doesn't mean that that's a lie. It's just how we perceive it. It's the only way it can have right. its epiphany in our world. And so, you know, just the same as the bark of a dog for Hecate or the clap of thunder for Zeus or the coo of doves for Aphrodite and um, and whatever we personally develop, you know, personal epiphanies as we grow in relation to these gods, which is the fun part. You know, if you live somewhere where there are no doves, you can still experience Aphrodite mm-hmm. in your life, but it will take a different form that's specific to where you live and where you are and whatever. And that's part of the excitement. Speaking of the Hakatian um, <laughs> epiphany right there, what's crazy <laughs> is there's no dogs in the room I'm in. <laughs> and I want to make another point here uh, that you keep t- you keep kind of touching on this, and I just want to articulate it for those listening. It's more important to have sincerity of heart to be praying from the heart to be invoking from the heart to be concentrating the attention to be present in the moment these are the true tools Uh, the the external tools consecrated appropriately have uh, constructed power from metis but the 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 heart the voice coming right. up from the heart out from the mouth the spilling forth of the heart from the mouth in prayer is more powerful than an empty ritual half attended to no matter how expertly attended to mm-hmm. beautifully said nicely said um i'd like to talk about the nature of the gods in the bronze age uh as opposed to later, they seem to reflect the psyche of the humans that were living at that time as well. They were very petty in some mm. ways, at least in these stories um, yeah. and backbiting and back, you know, fighting, backstabbing and scheming and getting very involved in human affairs of, of love and war and, and things that you would think were, you know, below the gods. And I know, um, Jack, you've you've called this kind of the daimonic aspect of the gods. And we touched on this, I believe, in in our last interview. But maybe we could talk about that too. Is is the nature of the god? Um, is are they just a reflection in a way of the people of the time? Because um, we don't have these hypercosmic gods at that time. They were very, very much, mm. at least not. Uh, as that that wasn't as emphasized it was more of a very interactive god it i think it's important to remember they're a family in these narratives they're yeah. a family and they mm-hmm. interact as a family and you don't have to be an ancient bronze age greek to recognize mm-hmm. the family dynamic the right. younger sister fighting with the older brother over mm-hmm. who's more favored than who the wife arguing with the husband as to who who's been you know should get the most respect or the protocol you know should serve the the favored son versus the unfavored son you know Hephaestus versus Ares in in Hera's mind and their attempts to deal with them being out whoever wrote these stories was a brilliant observer 
of family dynamics, of human relationships. And his vision of the gods, not surprisingly, it reflects a family. Mm-hmm. And that's what's wonderful is on one hand, it can be kind of shocking to see gods argue with each other, <laughs> or undermine each other, or form secret alliances against each other, or play each other off each other, or form temporary, you know, um, agreements and that, that even with enemies and go back. It, on one hand, it's like shocking to see deities portrayed that way. But it's completely familiar because it's what is going on at work and at mm-hmm. our families and in totally. our friends and enemy groups. Like it's so relatable. It's relatable. So that's again what's cool is what we encounter isn't really this crazy foreign alien un you know ungraspable thing like you do with some of the more mystic visions of deity that you find in subsequent ages. What you find is a very relatable dynamic, a power dynamic. And it's always acknowledged that Zeus is the head and the leader and the over God, mm-hmm. and he has more power than all the rest combined. But even Zeus himself can miss things. Even Zeus himself in this dynamic can be convinced to uh, you know, change his mind or you know take a mm-hmm. U-turn or back up or whatever. And so there's a wonderful sense that these deities are approachable because they're like us, and they recognize what we go through, and but we can recognize what they're going through. And that creates an avenue of approach for someone to to come toward them in this paradigm because they're familiar they're not strange and um and that i think it it i i like having a relatable god you know oh I absolutely think. i mean these are gods who fall in love they they're worried about things they're angry they hold grudges that go back to literally the beginning of time so like if you have a sibling you know what i'm talking about you know and 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 they and and they are relatable in that way. I, I I do notice that every single time that I read this again, that they 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 seem incredibly human and you know and in some ways kind of like you know archetypal projections of things that go on inside us as human beings in the same way as the family of you know forces in the Sandman. Yeah, we'll put. Well, there is a um, there's I, there, I'm looking for it right now. Um, you know when people there's a Pareidolia, mm-hmm. um, face, yeah. par- where yeah. people see faces in everything. Yeah. Uh, so this is a, I think this is an excellent example of the human tendency to project the human yeah. consciousness onto everything around them. And so what I think we, on one hand, I think we're also seeing that writ large in these stories, right? The gods are are actually immortal, uh, incorruptible, henads. So they really are not subject to lower human passions. But on the other hand, the daimons who manifest the gods uh, could be said to have certain personalities. Mm. But on the other hand, you know, we we also have a tendency, especially through drama, and drama is useful because drama is ritual, right? So drama enacts uh, it, it enacts a myth in space. And we're 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 doing that pareidolia thing where we're projecting ourselves out onto the cosmic screen, and in turn, then the gods are reflected through our projections back to us in a form that we can understand and interpret. On the other hand, I also think that it's interesting the family dynamic thing that was being mentioned here because uh, it enables us to see in our own lives how the forces of the gods even work through our personal relationships and mm-hmm. in our own psyches. So the tendency to love 
Aphrodite, the, the martial quality, Mars, our relationship, say, you know, you have a sister who's very just and, mm-hmm. you know, very just and studious and virtuous. And then you have a brother who might be a kleptomaniac, good with words, persuasive, mm-hmm. you know. <laughs> and it's like, okay, there, but but it enables you to see the divine characteristics manifest in the temporal personality. That's right. And it's interesting that they even project, despite the fact that these gods are all but all powerful, you know, Zeus in particular, even Zeus, they project onto Zeus uh, the idea that he is subject to fate, mm-hmm. you know, that that fate and the Moirai and Zeus are at some level conflationary, at some level mutually indistinguishable. And you can see the 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 readers and authors of these epics sort of you know grappling with what does it mean to live in a world where there are things i really can't control you know and you know so much so to this is so fundamental to my view of the cosmos that even my god can't control everything mm-hmm. you know yeah yeah i forget which part it was or what chapter i believe it was mm-hmm. zeus and um, I want to say he wasn't even able to see the exact outcome of, yes. of the situation, but he knew the yes. general outcome. Like, didn't know the specifics, but knew the general. Yeah, a lot like a terror reader. <laughs> <laughs> I do want to say it's interesting that Aramis is actually said to be above fate. Um, mm. You know, so it's interesting mm-hmm. that the one who seems the smallest at the same time is hailed in hymns as Lord of the Universe. Who is, mm. who is greater than fate and who can change fate. Mm. Yet, yes, there's definitely, I mean, there's definitely a a, a, um, a sort of a parallel or an analog to that in astrology where where the the Jupiter-ruled signs are opposite, the Mercury-ruled signs, there's like they're in opposition to each other because, you know, Mercury's the only one who gets away with it. Yeah. <laughs> that's cool. cool. Yeah, that's um, cool. Uh, there's there's a lot to talk about, but um, the course, if we're going to talk about the course too, it's great. There's just a, an abundance of material. You're, you're not going to get bored. Uh, Jack will read the chapter of the week, and then Susie and Jack will get together, and there's a commentary and, and kind of a dissection of the language and the nuance, um, a lot of very interesting insight. And then there's a third um, video that Jack puts out weekly where he discusses the takeaways from the chapter, um, how you can incorporate incorporate those lessons into your praxis. And I was just wondering, because there are so many chapters and so many lessons, um, if you guys would be able to share maybe your favorite takeaways, you know, the ones that really stand out for you that you've incorporated into your, into your practice and into your lives. Because um, for me, that was one of the most interesting parts of, of the course really were those takeaways. It's, it's a good question. I think, for myself, one of the best ones is simply in the early chapters, if you remember, some of the takeaways are to articulate what you want and why you want it and why they should care mm-hmm. and what will happen if you don't get it. And to me, that's a healthy thing to have to articulate to begin with, whether you you think it's going to compel a God to, to assist you or not. A lot of us go around, I'll speak for myself, a lot of times I don't know what I want 
or I think I know I want something, but I don't know why I just, why, why should anyone help me get it? Or what happens if I don't get it? I haven't even gotten that step. I'll just say, get me you know, <laughs> with this, help me with this. I want this, but that's kind of an immature, yeah. you know, it's kind of an immature line of approach. And um, just to be able to articulate that, to say, here's mm-hmm. why I came to you and here's why you should care. And if you, this doesn't happen, this is going to be the natural outgrowth of me not getting that. And it, it's sort of healthy. It's a healthy paradigm to be able to talk through what will happen. In a way, it's like in, in therapy, sometimes the best way they can help you is to say, and what would happen then if you did that? Mm-hmm. Yes. But what yes. would they say? Well, then what would you do? So what yeah. would be the, the impact? And a lot of times, startlingly, we haven't even gotten that far. You know, there's sort of this binary decision of there's life keeping on the train tracks and, you know, unimaginable tragedy if I if I don't do everything right every time. But when you start to lean into that, well, what does that mean? What would literally happen? Then all of a sudden, it's like having a candle in a dark room. You start to see, you see things, you know? And so just that sense of trying to articulate, it's a healthy conversation to have with oneself if you, you're at a point where you, you really want to implore the gods for this or for that or whatever. I mean, to me, the other main takeaway is this sense of, the sense of fate and how it affects how they relate, not just to the gods, but to themselves. As far as I can remember, there's no apologies in either epic. Their ideas of fate sort of preclude apologizing for things, which is interesting because coming from a Christian, you know, a, a Christian background, you're constantly apologizing in your prayers and your prayers of the God. You know, please forgive us for this. I'm sorry for that. I know that I haven't been this, but, you know, we ask you for this and, you know, we, Everywhere and always, you know, meant that you're this and we're that, etc. It's natural, you know. What's amazing is they never do it. They never do it, even when they're grotesquely at fault. <laughs> the Agamemnon, Agamemnon, you know, at the very beginning, he's he, he's convinced it's his fault that he, the men say this is your fault. The plague came here. We've done divination. It's your fault because you took this slave girl. So give her back, and maybe Apollo will end the plague. And he's like, okay, I'll give her back. But I'm not going to go slave girl less. So I'm going to take the second best slave girl, which is Achilles' slave girl. Achilles, <laughs> since we're so, so brilliant to bring up this problem that I caused, you be the solution. So I'll give back him, his slave girl, and I'll take yours. And he takes it. And then Achilles is so furious because the slave girl he was really in love with that he goes, you know, for most of the Iliad, he sulks in his ship, unwilling to help out as the Greeks suffer setback <laughs> after setback after bloody setback in the field. And everyone's like, we're never going to win unless we're led by Achilles. And there's this huge pressure, <laughs> there's this huge pressure on Agamemnon to go apologize to Achilles because the Trojans are getting closer and closer and closer. Mm-hmm. And once they reach their ships, if they set fire to them, it's over. The Greeks can't go home and their backs to the wall and they'll wind up being slaves for the rest of their life or dead. And so at the final spoiler alert, but at the at the final moment where it looks like you cannot, you cannot, you know, uh, the, there's no way to win. It's a, the 11th and a half hour. Agamemnon goes to visit Achilles. And you would think, you would think. Now would be that, the time. <laughs> that his speech would be like, mistakes were made. You know, like he'd be like, well. I have something I'd like to say. Uh, But instead, what's brilliant is instead he says something like, we both know that you're a noble hero. No one one denies that. And we both know I'm a king. And kings are ruled by Zeus. What we do is by Zeus. The choices we make are by his will. No one can do anything that Zeus doesn't want. 
Why Zeus made me say and do the things I did? They're a mystery to us both. Just a mystery. Who can tell the mind of the gods? Isn't it strange how they do what they want? You know? Now that we're at this pass and we're past all that, perhaps you and I should determine what to do about the Trojan forces that are about to set us all on fire. What are your thoughts on that stuff? Oh, he completely, the spiritual paradigm completely I'm sorry. And I'm not saying that like we should all like never say I'm sorry again, you know, but but it you read it and you have to read it twice to realize what you're seeing. You're like, how did he do that? But he (laughs) did it. Yes. He did it from a way that says Mm -hmm. we there is a greater it's very un-American, un-20th century, where, where our view is everything is your choice. You know, if you're in prison, mm. you make bad choices. If you're a millionaire, you make great choices. If you have a healthy marriage, wow, you made a wonderful choice. If you've divorced, you made a shitty choice. That's the American 20th century Christianized view. You're you're responsible for your fate. So that's why we can put someone in jail for 30 years and not worry about them, you know, because they made bad choices. That's why we idolize celebrities and, 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 uh, and people like that, because they, boy, they just decided to create a great song, you know. But we all know, that, you know, this paradigm is actually much more sane and healthy. It says mm-hmm. we're part of a tapestry. We're a thread in a tapestry. The thread doesn't weave itself. The thread doesn't cut itself. The thread doesn't even interweave itself. What the thread can do is catch the light. The thread can be the brightest, most beautiful thread it can be. And a lot of the decisions, quote unquote, being made in the Iliad, certainly, is not to do A or B, but it's to accept your fate and lean into it, as opposed to dragging your heels, kicking and screaming toward where you clearly are heading. And it's 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 a frightening paradigm because it implies you're not in charge, man. But in some ways, it's a great relief because it means, under their way of thinking, you it's not really to your credit, your successes. But it's not really your fault, your failures. You have a destiny. And yeah, you can implore the gods to make it, you know, to tweak it, to turn it, to bend it, make it slightly less painful or slightly, you know, more stable than maybe was originally conceived. But you're not driving a car, you're riding a train. And so what are you going to do about it? Mm. And that alone, it it makes me, it's something I grapple with daily, how to how to perhaps incorporate that into what I think of as what's coming or what's here. Very, mm-hmm. very, very well said. Um, I really appreciate the way you put that. I think it was eloquent. I The point you made, that, that, that example you gave, is another just excellent, excellent expression of the didactic method being used to show how the gods <laughs> reveal themselves in reality you know it's humorous it, there there's 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 really expert writing there but it's also definitely a, a definitely an example of that it, they're showing again here the way the gods come through even yeah. our own psyche and our station in life it's it's the chain <laughs> of sympathy you know Right. right, and I'm sure there were a, a, a ton of Hellenic men who tried to use that excuse with their wives. <laughs> it was Aphrodite, you know. What am I supposed to do? <laughs> yeah, but I um I would say that I, for me the difference, and this is going outside of the purview of maybe the point of this 
uh, episode, but for me, there is the Gnostic distinction. You know, you're speaking about the Hemarmene, you're speaking about the set fate, but the Gnostic distinction is the idea that there is an additional element that enables us to transcend the destiny created for us by the rulers of the cosmos. But it, it's but in order to access that freedom, we have to connect with the forces beyond the cosmos. Mm-hmm. You know, that began in the Ogdoad. Now, again, this is maybe outside of the purview of the course, but it's still a point that I think is important because I personally don't think that we're as constrained by that fate as um, as it may seem. That's well put. That's well put. And even in this very daimonic, family-oriented dynamic, when they refer back to Zeus, like Susan said, he'll say frequently, Zeus knows all, sees all, determines all. He has more power than the rest combined. He ultimately is, you know, he is the decider, the ultimate decider. And though he can't see all of fate in his granular detail, and while he's not entirely omniscient, he's as close as you get within their paradigm. Mm. And you can see in their reference to him, you can see the seeds of probably what became for that for that culture, you know. An over God, uh, an, an, a transcendent God, you know, a God that was of the air, an eye in the sky, a, you know, a being who was, you know, celestial and eternal. And eternal news. Yeah. 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 And I think to live with that consciousness is to, you know, as I've said before, is to live a life suffused with meaning. I mean, I think that, you know, one of the things I was thinking about when, <laughs> when Jack was talking about, uh, Agamemnon's non-apology is uh, is a, is is another non-apology that comes in the Odyssey, where there's um, where Odysseus is insulted by uh, the son of one of his hosts, and um, and and the the son is young and reckless, and he realizes his mistake, and he has to make up for it in some way. So he says to um, Odysseus. Not, oh God, what did I say? I'm so sorry. No, he says, farewell, Father Stranger, if a dreadful word has been said, note the if, in any way, may Stormwind snatch it up at once and carry it away. And to me, that is sort of a perfect illustration of the integration of, uh, you know, human impulses with the natural world. Mm -hmm. And to me, that's one of my tremendous takeaways from doing this work and having gone through this course with everyone, is the the recognition that when you go outside and you hear the wind or you walk and feel the dirt under your feet and you hear a brook running past you, you know, there's a sense of occasion. There's a sense that you belong to this world and that you can you can observe that, you can commemorate it, you can add your logos to it, you know, to bring meaning back out of every moment that you step outside. And to me, that's, that's inspiring. That's, mm-hmm. that's really living life as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Very nicely put. I like well, that. And this is a course on magic too, right? So, mm-hmm. I mean, the, the magician possesses the agency to alter reality, but ironically that agency emanates from the deity. Mm-hmm. So it's, there's a circular, there's a circularity here where, the deities that are creating fate, their efflux, their outflow uh, pools within the heart of the magician or magicianess, who then in turn 
affects it throughout the world to produce order, which in turn uh, creates harmony. So it, it's interesting because in a way, even in altering fate, we're putting ourselves in harmony with fate. Mm. Mm. That's really cool. That's yeah. really cool. You were talking about this lived uh, worldview, and, and yeah, it's a very mindful kind of non-dual way to live because mm. you're you're finding that integration between yourself and the exterior world, and and finding that there's there's less separation maybe than we when, than we perceive. And we're able yes, to, yes, you know. I think that's very true. I mean, we think of you know Hermes as the the god who can go between one realm and the next, but another way to look at that is simply to say you're always in between. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Nice. Well, and then that's, that, that really lends itself to the daimonic in itself. Cause what is Hermes, but the, the weaver of words, the storyteller. And I forget who it was that said this, but they said, um, you know, don't believe anything that don't believe anything that the poets say about the gods, because they're all lies. You know? <laughs> and, and so, so, so you know, here here we have um, Hermeneutes, you know, her, hermeneutics, yeah. where yeah. we apply the science of the the therapeutic hermeneutic to these epics in order to extract the logos, which is concealed within them. And I know it may not seem it may seem tertiary, but the it's when I I remember having the insight that at least to this worldview, the air is also a form of matter. So mm-hmm. we're in a sea, we're in an ever fluctuating sea of matter, which if you think about that, because we usually, I think that, you know, most human beings just think air is like space or like the movement, wind is like the movement of air through space, but we're not in space according to that archaic worldview. We're in a sea of matter. But what that means is you're always touching everything else, mm. including mm. the gods. That's cool. I think you can find that what book two of the Corpus Hermeticum. They speak almost directly in that way about air and void and the difference. Oh wow, that's very yes, cool. yes. There's a there's a wonderful passage in um, oh gosh, I can't remember. It's like book nine of the Iliad where where <laughs> where they describe sort of like you know the 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 cosmology of where tartarus is exactly located and there's like air and then there's like mist and then there's like the darker lower mist and it's like and there's like literally a diagram in the commentaries that somebody got tenure drawing <laughs> you know that that shows you exactly how you can get there in case you you know need a day trip <laughs> it's kind of worth mentioning too that when Daffy. you do encounter what we consider magic or sorcery in the Iliad, it's usually, and the Odyssey, it's usually being done by someone who's related to the gods. You know, they're a godhead. They're a, they're a hero. Achilles does sorcery. He summons the winds at one point uh, to help more swiftly burn the body of Patroclus. And um, and Kirky does magic, of course, mm-hmm. when she and she's related to the sun. So she does, mm-hmm. you know, she first she transforms Ulysses' uh, crew into swine and back again and makes them more beautiful than they were. And then she gives him the advice on how he can raise the ghost of Tiresias from the underworld. There's a, mm-hmm. a fantastic, famous chapter of the descent to the underworld and, mm-hmm. and Odysseus doing. So he does necromancy. And while they don't say he's like literally a son of Hermes, it's acknowledged that his family line were devotees of Hermes 
not just him, but his family tree, like Hermes yeah. is oh, yeah. of his line. And so yeah. it creates this sense of being a de facto son of Hermes or something like that, that he can pull this off. So, well, there's a, a lot of, uh, there are yeah. a lot of like demigods and even on the battlefield, there's, there's quite a right. few oh. sons of Ares and so many, so much so that it's referred to as, you know, the phrase itself starts to be, have a metaphoric sense too. There's a literal sense where some were literally fathered by Ares. Mm-hmm. And then sometimes it's used just sort of mm. to be like yeah. the, those of Ares, you know, just sort of like Odysseus is of Hermes, you know, and you get a sense which ties in nicely, that sense of emanationism that you were talking about, Janus, this, this sense that if we are emanations ultimately of the gods, then if we look at who we are, what we're drawn to, the pattern of our lives, the pattern of our, you know, of affinities and correlations and correspondences, we can sort of detect which God we're, mm. you know, and maybe deepen that relationship to where we too can receive the favor of a, you know, of a a son of dot dot dot. Mm-hmm. Well, and that's that's huge what you just said because it's uh, part of the process that you know you guys you guys are illustrating that in this course, and it's also part of this theurgic process that occurs because we have to ask ourselves you know mystery language right like the mysteries were an important part of this culture uh the mysteries mm-hmm. go back to you know there, there were rocks that were venerated as 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 the deity itself you know and, and exceed you know looking looking at my known culture looking looking at elusis and the the mysteries were inherent and, and the reason i'm bringing this up is because we have to understand mysteriosophy the mysteriosophical lingua fraca so when a being is a son or daughter of a god what is it what is it when a god conceives with a human is that physical sexual intercourse or is it a different kind of intercourse between a divine being and a human soul? For instance, mm. there's a Gnostic book called On the, the Exegesis of the Soul, which mm. uh, has a Platonic reference to how the soul is a womb. So in that case, without going too far into things that are should not be profaned in public hearing, I think that there's enough inference here to understand that Intercourse may mean something different when we're talking about interaction with the gods and goddesses, when we're talking about dealings with the divine on the level of the soul. And so, you know, a a demigod or a demigoddess, for that matter, may be a human being who has achieved integration with a divinity. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, like in a Philip K. Dickian sense, a homoplasmate. You know why I like it. I like it because a lot of people now who approach the Greek myths in our culture and our contemporary times are put off by a lot of them seeming, quote, rapey, that there's a lot of tales of Apollo chasing this nymph or Zeus mm-hmm. pursuing that mortal or whatever. And a lot of people just find that a huge turnoff. What you just described mm-hmm. is something I deeply believe, which is that these stories have an esoteric meaning. Yeah. It, these people weren't people. Yes. These individuals, right. though they're portrayed with human-like features, these are bodiless divine forces. Yes. So when they say mm-hmm. that the that the the ruler of the air pursued a daughter of the earth to bring forth a child that was flowers, they're not literally describing sexual assault. They're trying to, within a, a you know a mythopoetic way, to hint at mysteries that involve soul, spirit 
and lines of divine creativity interacting. You know, when you hear about a lot of people have put off the, the Orphic hymn, there's a version of Dionysus Zagreus that they hint that Thonic Zeus uh, mated with his own daughter to bring forth Zagreus, and she was in the form of a dragon, or and he and a, as a serpent brought forth this horn child below the earth. And if you look at it, but it's it's not a tale of abusive relationships, it's a tale of a celestial power conjoining with a thonic power to bring forth a child that was integrated into both. He's a horn child with dominion over both the upper and lower worlds, and he's destroyed by the jealousy of the earth spirits that can't accept him, but he lives again through the re-embodiment, through, through Zeus's body. In a, I mean, these are mystic concepts mm -hmm. meant for sure. contemplation and, 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 and the mysterium of ritual and uh and dreams and these aren't literal descriptions of what mm -hmm. people did because they weren't people so i love what you just said because it shows how how they could be approached with the right attitude which is that, that these are something sort of you know when they say when mary learns in the bible that she's going to bear um the child of god it says she contemplated them in her heart that information it's a great phrase she didn't complain about it to the police, you know, she did like she contemplated it. And I think when we yeah. encounter these types of stories, that's the best thing we can do and let them settle into us and see what resonance they have in sort of a mystic aspect and, and not be put off right away by the paradigm that was used yes. by the mythographer. Yes, absolutely. I think that's, that's very true. I mean, it's it, the wonderful thing about these mythic tales, I think, is that they can be read on so many levels, right? Because it's sort of like, you know, it's like scriptural exegesis. You can read it in a literal way for plot because there's fantastic plot. There's loads mm -hmm. of plot. You can read it for metaphor. You can read it for uh, for for devotional purposes. And then you can read it for your own secret purposes that nobody knows, right? You know, and it still belongs um, to the same paradigm. It's true on every level. And the ability to detect you know, um, layers of truth in every way that you read is in some ways the art of Hermes. It's the art of interpretation. <laughs> it is the art of true lies, right? Good. You know, so that is, you know, why we come back again and again to these fictions, even, you know, 2000 years later, because, you know, because they, they hold truths that we can recognize through our own power of detecting lies. And we can invoke the aid of the God in interpretation of the text prior to reading it, asking for inspiration so that we can properly understand the hidden meaning, the esoteric meaning. And also by reciting elements of the text, we enact logismos, we, we, we set into motion uh, reality by structuring it through the words of the text. I mean, we're dealing with the text yes. that is embedded in the collective unconscious, that is part of human history on such a deep level, and its antecedent elements are probably aboriginal. So we are drawing that up, that psychic energy up, and then out of our mouths when we're speaking this out, and it's forming reality. And if we were in a visionary state of consciousness, we would probably see archaic Greek images coming from our mouth and then integrating with the patterns that create reality. Mm. You know what I, mean? I love that idea. There's, I mean, that's part of the reason I, I really love reading. I loved having the chance to read this in the original because I never thought I'd do it. And, you know, uh, and 
you know, when when Jack asked me to do this course, I, I really jumped on it because, you know, I thought, well, I, I never really completed my education. I mean, we never do. So you might as well read it now when you have the chance. But but there's something about reading it in the original, uh, you know, that I think is exciting, not just for a huge nerd like me, but like I think for everyone, there's something in the in the sound of the language that mm-hmm. is um, I don't know. It it kind of gives you a frisson because it's 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 meant to be spoken. It's meant to be read out loud. It's meant to be heard. And even just like ordinary passages uh, have a certain rhythm, well, a literal rhythm and a beauty to them because it's all in dactylic hexameter. And like there's a very good example in um, in the end of the Iliad where uh, where there they're burning the body of Achilles, right? And literally, this is a scene of people going to the funeral mound and bringing shit to burn. Like, it's just like going back and forth and up and down, like they're on an elevator at the mall. It's the most repetitive, boring thing you can imagine. And yet, you know, the the, the English goes something like, they went many ways. They went uphill, they went downhill, they went sideways, and they went slantwise. Uh, uphill, downhill, sideways, slantwise. But this... Um, this passage is famous in Greek because it is this passage where it has the greatest number of ah sounds in any example of, you know, of um, of literature. And it goes, Polla dananta katanta paranta te dormia telton. And, you know, and you hear that and you can hear the galloping, <laughs> rolling rhythm of this thing. And you're like, of course they wanted to sit there and listen to this. Yeah. You know, of course, you know, and I think that even if you don't understand it, it's fun to say and it's fun to hear. <laughs> and, you know, I hope you guys think so because <laughs> I get such a kick out of this. I, stuff. I want you to. I find it so fun. I want you to read it again. Now that we know what it is, read it again. <laughs> okay. Pola dananta katanta paranta te dohmia telton. It is awesome. And it com- is awesome. Compared to the English, yeah. <laughs> and and the course is fun. I mean, you guys look like you're having a blast, and I have to say, it's you're hilarious. Um, <laughs> More than, on more than one occasion, one of my family members have come into the room to to see what the hell I'm laughing at. Um, <laughs> it's 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 quite fun. And Homer, um, these these two epics are just masterpieces of literature. They're so cinematic. I mean, even the boring parts. I mean, the the battle scenes are just um, unbelievable. Yeah, the way they they're are. they're written. Um, you feel I, I feel like I'm in a drone, like going through the battlefield. Yeah, um, it's, it's just very cinematic. It, yes. It, Go the, ahead. The, yeah. the, I was just about to say the, the paradigm of the fighting too is mind blowing. Yeah. Because the way the battle, the armies fight, unlike you know modern day battles where the generals and everyone stay at the safe location and send all the nameless hordes to fight, in these battles, all the major warriors who are recognizable to each other by their mm-hmm. their motifs on their armor. They approach each other on both sides, and the armies follow kind of at a distance, nervously, <laughs> and and kind of watch what's going to happen. And the heroes fight, yeah. And the armies may or may not get dragged into some peripheral fighting, depending on which way the surge goes. But it's it makes it more like an MMA match. It makes it more like WW, you know, uh, World of Wrestling. 
than it does a typical like modern battle because you have all the it's it's really actually great because they lead you know it's like if you're a leader then lead mm-hmm. if you're going to lead yeah. us in this battle then you're in front and there's a great logic to it and then later it's revealed Achilles mentions when he talks about the slave girl that was taken from him, he said I never even I never picked her out she was given to me as always with the loot that my men gave me and he mm-hmm. makes the point that when they loot a city his men divvy up the loot and he takes what they give him. Mm. So it ensures mm. it's a very, you know, it's a, it's a very egalitarian system. It ensures that the leaders are there because they're, you know, yeah. They, yeah. They, yeah. they get anything. Yeah. It's because the men recognize they deserve it. And you see that in place in these battles. And what it means, the battles aren't descriptions of just nameless people mowing each other down but they're these yeah. grudge matches between these personalities these celebrities these heroes as they crash together it almost has this cosmic sense as they because they, they know about each other they know who they're descended from and sometimes they like each other so much they make friends on the battlefield right like, let's not fight each other anymore like you know right, I was, like my you, grandfather knew was, your grandfather yeah right right exactly exactly <laughs> you know, yeah. and the other thing is that like you know the, the other thing about these battle scenes is that Homer delights in the goriness and <laughs> oh, the violence God. and the, you know, and he'll literally be describing somebody's eye being gouged oh, out God. or their hand being hacked off. But then he'll stop in the middle of it and he'll remember who he's talking to. He's talking to farmers. He's talking to like millers, and you know, herdsmen. And he'll be like, oh, you know what that's like? That's like, you know, when you're when you're threshing the wheat and the chaff flies <laughs> off, you know, and it's just like this this bizarre, you know, yeah. cognitive right. break where he's like, right. You know, the scene of blood flying everywhere suddenly transformed into this, you know, bucolic, agrarian, idyllic depiction of country life. And you're like, what just happened? And the effect of it, I think, is to stylize the action, Mm -hmm. you know, in a way that to me feels very modern, like you're watching a Tarantino movie or something, you know? brilliant to think about the time. It it also creates a series of snapshots in every chapters of the world this story's come out of. Yeah. His almost all his metaphors, as Susan pointed out, are mundane, homey, rustic metaphors, but they're very, and they're very literal. So by looking at them, you literally see what the teller, call him Homer, you see what he has seen. You know he mm-hmm. saw, he'll describe, he'll say, you know, these two battles fought, you know, these two armies clashed as when a, a wildfire moves down a mountain, burning each tree in its wake, approaching the shore. That's right. And you yeah. like, he must he have seen that. that. That's yeah. not a brand That's right. He saw that. Yeah. He saw yeah. that and watched it yeah. happen. Or he'll talk about, you know, they 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 snarled at each other like, like two old washerwomen on the streets who need the one who give an inch, you know, arguing with each other. And these, yes. these snapshots of his world. So you not only see these these great mythic, you know, battles and such, but you slowly become familiar with his world and weirdly with him, if he wasn't. Yes. It, it, yes. You get to know him, even though we can't even tell that was his name or was there a school of bards or was he just, a, you know, invented after the fact. But whoever first created these these metaphors, you see what they saw you briefly through their own eyes and their own words. And it's a privilege and it's really cool. Yeah. I, I, what I'm always struck by when I'm reading these passages is just the 
deep level of empathy of this narrator, right? You know, because the reason that he's translating these battle scenes into, you know, into these homely agrarian scenes is because he's trying to relate to his audience. And not only that, he goes so far as to like, anthropomorphize the actual weapons. I mean, even the arrow freaking has a personality, you know, and it really wants to reach its target. I mean, there is no limit to the ability of this narrator to relate to everything and everyone. And I think there's something just so, I don't know, so charming and, um, and disarming about that. Nicely put. Um, I know it's getting late for some of you guys. Uh, so I, I think we should probably start to wrap it up. This has been super fun, but I, I want to get your thoughts on, cause you've, you've just wrapped up your, your previous class, which kudos to you guys. It's what an endeavor, what, what an output of energy and time. And, you know, it, it just seems like such a, a project. Um, what are your thoughts on this, this past year generally, on how it went and and your thoughts on on the next class i will say that it turned i thought it turned out far better than i could have hoped in large part susan put in a huge amount of work Mm. reading through both epics on her own entirely in greek and bringing to us in the class discussions the best nuggets the most interesting linguistic and spiritual and magical and stuff that was just funny and interesting so she combed the material yeah to bring us it in the original source language which is just something you can't get anywhere else that i know of it's beautiful beautiful, uh contribution on her part plus this class as you can imagine it attracts really cool people from all over the world we had we had um people who were um you know from countries all over eastern europe and and asia mm-hmm. and uh and and people in israel and and south america and what was exciting is we we try to keep up a discussion not just of the materials but what does this remind you of of stuff in your own life or other cultural phenomenons novels movies you've seen stuff like that and people's ability to come up with associations of similar ideas or different stories or contrasting trains of thought and tales from their own life of when they thought destiny stepped in or fate mm-hmm. took a hand or, mm-hmm. or they felt the presence of the gods. It was really moving, really moving. And the discussions about art and um, and spirituality, people were very generous. This class tends to attract people that are very generous mm-hmm. that way. And it's a great way to make friends or just engage in a in a meaningful discussion that's something more than just the usual. Mm-hmm. You know, I, w- I was really pleased by it and hugely grateful for everyone. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's been just a, an unforgettable experience. And, you know, really not just as having the privilege of participating and being, you know, uh, in conversation with Jack on this course, but even as a person who just consumed the material myself, I found it incredibly illuminating. I mean, I mean whether it's listening to Jack read because he has that, you know, voice that you can listen to, even if it's reading the phone book. But um, but also every week what Jack does is he provides these takeaways that 
help you relate what you're reading to what you're doing as a metaphysician, as mm-hmm. an occultist, as an esoteric practitioner. And you really cannot find that anywhere else. I mean, there was not a week that went by that I didn't take something away from what Jack said and apply it in some way to my own praxis. And I mm-hmm. think that would be true for anyone who takes this course as well. Very cool. We, we can't uh, speak highly enough about it. We try and maintain a level of quality here and we only promote um, things we believe in and we really believe in what these guys are doing and so like that's why we're supporting them yeah um, yeah thank totally. you so much thank, thank you, you so much, much. that and, means a lot to us yeah, you know disclaimer yeah. i am dom's landlord so that does, <laughs> <laughs> has to be factored into the, his enthusiasm <laughs> uh, i want to ask you guys two questions uh, related to the what we've been discussing um but to close First is based on this material, this Homer- Homeric material, how how can we recognize epiphanies of the God? Oh, what a great question. You know, it's a really good one. And I would say that that's going to be a personalized experience for every different person. But I will say, I will say this, a consistent acknowledgement in these epics is that the an epiphany of the god is accompanied usually by a sense of the mortal who apprehended them feeling enormously heartened, encouraged, energetic, emboldened, and excited. They're not to encounter the gods is not to be crushed flat emotionally or 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 um shrunk or or you know overwhelmed. It's to be literally to experience enthusiasm that's stepping outside of yourself so that a warrior who's just fought for eight hours straight and is about to collapse <laughs> has a vision the gods say you know fight on you know we're proud of you and all of a sudden he can't wait to go back to the battlefield he's just bursting with energy you know and the same thing for inventors or for artists or for leaders or for whomever if you have an epiphany of the gods it's like Iamblichus saying that one of the ways you tell if a spirit is higher or lower is the impact it has on you and the mm-hmm. impact of seeing an archangel is different from the impact of seeing a, a sublunar diamond, right? And it, there's an emotion that not only do they look differently in the Amblica's world, but they impact you differently. So even if you can't quite tell what you saw, you think, what effect did it have on me? And that tells you who you saw. And in, in Homer, the uh, epiphany of the gods, whether it's a dream or seeing the gods in another person or hearing their voice through a mortal or actually seeing a vision of a glowing figure, is accompanied by enormous enthusiasm, energy, and certainty, and boldness. Precisely. I mean, I think that sense of the numinous is essential and vital. I mean, it's like, you know, when when Jung described what a synchronicity was, what he would say was that it was a meaningful coincidence. Well, what, what makes it meaningful it mm. comes from the subject. It comes from you. It comes from inside mm. you, that sense of reverence and a sense of numinosity. So it's the same thing that I tell my students when you know they're trying to read tarot, that meaning making is a collaborative process, right? It's it doesn't just sort of like hit you in the face most of the time. <laughs> it's sort of like you you have to be paying attention. And if you're paying attention, and I think this is true of epiphanies as well, theurgic epiphanies, there's an opportunity for the that sense of the numinous to arise in you. And I think that we invite that when we do this work. Mm-hmm. Well said, well said. So, so good. That's so good. Thank you so much for that. And then 
The other question I have for you both is, okay, um, quick disclaimer. I have issues with the term patron God. Um, <laughs> I, I don't like it. Um, I think it's inaccurate. I don't think it's like, hey, will you patronize me? I pick my, yeah, I, maybe it's just like having interacted with like neo-pagans who turn it into LARPing. But I think that it's some, so much deeper. We don't select the God, like, and the God isn't patronizing us like a wealthy benefactor who's paying for us to, you know, make some art or something. Um, it's more, I think it's a deeper thing than that. I like the child of the God thing um, mm-hmm. or the devotee of the God, uh, something like that. But anyway, with that aside, which we can actually edit out if necessary, um, it's just a gripe of mine, a linguistic gripe. Uh, but how... Based on this material, this Homeric material, how how does one relate to their personal God? You know, based on these sources, these these ancient sources, what are some ways that somebody, what are some things that someone can take from these sources to learn how to appropriately relate to the God? I mean, one of the things that, I've really taken away from it is that, you know, there's always an occasion, you know, it's not something that you have to wait for, right? And at every meal, there's a libation, right? Every single time they have barbecue, <laughs> gods get get an acknowledgement, and that is seems to be constantly. But also, you know, it it's um it's it's when you are in trouble, certainly. It's when you are um in need of accessing your own skills or what you conceive of as your own skills, but which might be God-given in some way. It's when you are grateful. And to me, it's when you are, um, when you, when you are observing simply, you know, the sacredness and the, uh, I don't know, and the, and the, imminent meaning in your environment. So so I might have a word with Hermes not only during Wednesday at his hour at his shrine, you know, not only when I'm eating and I pour out libation to him, but also when I'm just crossing a bridge, because to me that is of Hermes, right? Or when I'm, um, and I've literally done this, when I'm crossing an international border and I don't want to get stopped or when I'm sending my bags to the TSA check. Right. You know, I mean, it's sort of like there is a chance to be in conversation with the deity of your choice at any given moment. And, you know, and you find ways to integrate that into your life, which I find really exciting. That's I I love that aspect of looking in your mundane life for the correlations of the physical places you're in and the geographical, you know, place you're in. That, that's a one and temporal and everything. That's wonderful. I would say for me, I started when I remember it, the one biggest thing that they do that we don't is libations. Mm. They do it all the time. Constantly. The only other offering they tend to do is, you know, they slaughter a lot of bulls, but we're talking about kings and a bull, you know, it's going to be eaten by an army. It's not, it's not something most of us can do, but, but it's, it's remarkable if there could be one thing we could do to adopt their tech of devotion. It would be I've tried to when I'm out with friends start or asking for and one empty glass with our drink order, and then just simply before you take your first drink to lift it and say you know 
to my God so-and-so or, or to, you know, and, and pour out one sip into the cup. That alone, if you did that, if you were being watched by whoever first told these stories from 3,000 years ago, they would recognize it. And they would mm. recognize the value of it. And simply that thing, for it not to be just an intellectual pale mm-hmm. you, but to actually give them something of what you have in a material, recognizable way. It's so simple. It's so effortless. But the effort in doing it, it literally and figuratively brings them to the table, we're told. Right. It right, makes right. them, if you give them something in a material way, they become part of your life in a material way, meaning an apprehendable way, and maybe get invested in you in your material life and how they might, you know, integrate themselves into that. So I'll throw that out there. It's so simple, but it's something anyone could do. It doesn't involve a separate room or a gold sword or a black cube or, a, you know, a, <laughs> you know, like it's something you can do anywhere. And the waiter looks at you a bit weird, but still, yes. you do Everybody that. looks at me weird anyway. <laughs> yeah, it's true. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> but both of you think that is so eloquent and i really appreciate what both of you said there and mm-hmm. it's practical and that's the thing you gave something that people can practically use and the whole course is like it's it's chock full of that i want to say um that regular participation in the deity, which is an actual technical term, participating mm. in the God, mm. what mm. that does is it develops intimacy. When you're doing mm. this stuff, say with Aramis, mm-hmm. you know, <clears throat> you know, waking up in the morning, you know, pouring that libation, sharing that food, doing the invocation before a podcast you're developing intimacy with the god with each of these things you're you're constantly calling this god to your attention to your mind to your soul and it it's it doesn't it's not the god i do as far as i understand it the god does not see it as as petty when you're asking for help with these things because the god really sees it as wow this human is developing a really really trying to develop this relationship with me And we're becoming closer because it's beyond even a dialectic because when you do this, your consciousness focuses on the God and your consciousness draws near to the God and unifies with the God for the moment for the, it instantiates the God in your awareness. And Mm. the more you do that, the more your life becomes Mm. a living continuous prayer to the God or to the gods. That's beautiful. Mm. Love that idea. That's beautifully put. That's beautiful. So um, I think we're good for tonight. What do you, what do you think guys? Okay, um, so where could people find this course? That's kind of important, right? Right. Um, people can find it at www.grail, G-R-A-Y-L-E hyphen lore, L-O-R-E dot teachable dot com. So Susie, what do you got going on? Yeah, I've got a bunch of stuff going on. Um this weekend, I'm going to Northwest Tarot Symposium to do a talk on tarot spreadsheeting. And then uh, I'm also starting this course for Atlas Obscura, um, which is a four-week um, introduction to tarot, basically. Very mainstream. Very, very cool. exciting. Really enjoying that. And um, yeah, and then... As usual, I'm still making perfumes. I'm still making cases, and uh, and well, this is the other the other side of the life I live. I've got um, 
two dozen unopened boxes of cookbooks in my mudroom right now because it's almost time to do the NPR cookbook reviews, which I do at the end of the year. So there's that as well. And then in the spring, I'll be teaching. But other than that, it's just readings and uh, the Living Tarot online course and the book that's coming out in uh, May. So proofs are happening for that. So there's there's kind of a bunch of stuff. (laughs) There's just a bunch of stuff going on. Awesome. Awesome. Okay. Well, please check all that stuff out and that'll keep you busy for a while. Um, in addition to the course, thank you guys so much for coming back on. It's, it's, yeah. Oh, thank you we so much yeah. for having us, Dom and Janice. It's always great to talk with you guys. Oh, it's such a pleasure. Thank you for keeping our bar high too. I mean, this was an excellent episode <laughs> consistent with the quality that we try and portray. You guys are great. Oh, it's our pleasure. That was Jack Grail and Susie Chang coming on to talk about all things Homer. They have an excellent course that they run, which we wholeheartedly endorse. It's not only interesting from an esoteric point of view, but it's just interesting in terms of a point of view of essential literary sources of our culture. There is so much in our modern world, which is still influenced by Hellenic culture and the works of giants like Homer, Plato, and others, you know, Aristophanes, and on the Greek side of, or on the Latin side of things, the Roman side of things, Virgil. We don't realize Ovid with his metamorphoses. We don't realize the impact that these ancient writers had on our culture today. Even Julius Caesar was a prolific author. People move through the culture we live in without awareness of its origins. And it's really a shame because without an awareness of origin, you cannot get to the core of where you are, the understanding of the context that surrounds you. I'm grateful for their work. It's really educational, really interesting, and very fun. And they're fun people. And if you're doing work that is based in the ancient Greek world or the magical papyri, which are a synthetic pastiche of the influences of late antiquity, you should be aware of these stories and the way that they relate because it will Exploring them will enable you to immerse yourself in the mental model of the people that produced those magical books. This is important. Uh, it will give you an insider's understanding of the processes of the esotericism of the time. There is even a Homeric or- oracle, a Homeromantia, in the Greek magical papyri. And so I, I strongly recommend investigating their work it's worth your time it's worth your money you're you're certainly going to learn a lot from it um you pretty much said everything i wanted to say i agree i don't think people take things like homer seriously enough you know for anyone who's thinking that they are participating in something like uh you know hellenic um mysticism in the modern day 
and yet doesn't know Homer back to front, you know, they're they're not truly getting as deep and as much of a rich experience as they as they could be. So and you know, for me, when Jack and Susie are are dealing with these kind of topics and talking about these things, compared to what else is going on in, in the in the culture, uh, you know, the subculture, the culture, it, it for me it feels like okay, the adults are talking now. Like if if you look at all the other nonsense that you see um, on the internet and you know all these these groups and these personalities, I really feel like these guys have their finger on uh, the proper perspective on on how to how to look at these things. You could tell the sincerity and the enthusiasm and the passion is is there one hundred percent. So, okay, I think that's enough of a commercial for them. Let's do the book review. What do you got? So this is an excellent introduction to his main corpus, but it also is a wonderful standalone text. Schwaller de Lubis, I think that's how you say his name. I can never get that last name right. L-U-B-I-C-Z, illustrated by Lucy Lamy. But this book is The Temple in Man, Sacred Architecture and the Perfect Man. Is Schwaller de Lubis went to the Temple of Luxor and spent 12 years meticulously researching the geometrical architectural proportions of the temple and came to the conclusion that the temple was built upon the proportions of the human form. Not only that, but he was able to discern through experiential immersion in the environment a deep comprehension of the symbolic understanding of hieroglyphic script in Egyptian consciousness. This book lays the foundation for uh, a true understanding of uh, Egyptian esotericism. If you're interested in Greek esotericism, Hellenic esotericism, um, the Hellenes, many of the greatest Hellenes, Pythagoras, Plato, et al., all felt that their culture had been seeded by or grew from the ancient Egyptian culture. So understanding Egyptian culture will help you to understand Greek culture to a certain degree as well. This book is incredible. Um, Unfortunately, these days on the internet, we see a lot of spirit science. The pineal gland is the eye of Horus. Yeah, man, you the universe, dog. Emerald tablets and all this stupid nonsense. However, the stupid nonsense is based in true things, and it's just distorted, kind of like the Kabbalion, which is a spurious New Thought work, which in turn has caught the attention of some people to the degree where they've become interested in authentic hermetism. With that said, the god Thoth is the lord of architecture, language, lord of the house of books, And he established the original foundations of the science of architecture. This book explores the cosmological, esoteric origins of that architecture and essentially is an explication of the hermetic axiom as above, so below. We see depicted in the temple the proportions of the human form 
he even goes in the early part of the book into an expression of how the cathedrals in Europe are based upon the same proportions, which is suggestive of a canon transmitted probably in an underground way from ancient Egypt into even the high culture of the Middle Ages of Europe. Um, the reason I'm mentioning that is to mention that this book is an immersion. Uh, a sat you will be saturated with this understanding. There's a touch of mathematics in it, but nothing unwieldy. And it, it will lead you into a further, further and deeper grasp of the Egyptian paradigm, the paradigm of heaven on earth and earth in heaven. And that is the foundation of the Hermetica. Uh, you see these teachings couched in Greek philosophical Middle Platonic terminology in the Hermetica, but their roots run deep into Egyptian culture. So I recommend this book highly if you're interested in architecture, esotericism, Egyptian religion and spirituality, and the relationship between the microcosm and the macrocosm. Um, Schwaller, R.A. Schwaller de Lubis, The Temple in Man, Sacred Architecture and the Perfect Man. Inner Traditions publishes this as well as many of his other writings. And kind of like today's guests who created this course, you have to invest yourself in studying these things. You must invest yourself and study with, with this level of esotericism. It's not for entertainment. It's not for clothing purposes. It's for the edification of the soul, the development of the intuition, and the refinement of the intellect, which results in the ennoblement of the individuality through exposure to the radiance of the divine. All right, I think that's good for today. Thank you for the book review. Um, I think it's time to wrap up. Thank you, everyone, for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode. We really did enjoy recording it. It was a lot of fun. And we will see you in the next episode. Mm -hmm.